Welcome trailblazers and visionaries to the Forging Manufacturing Podcast. I am your host, Dave Hampton. And I'm your co-host, Jason Flores. So for our first time listeners, and welcome back, those have heard us before, uh, Forging Manufacturing goal is to provide uh, insight and thought leadership to those working in, around, or simply just interested in manufacturing. And we will bring you thought leaders who will share stories of success and achievement or stories of failure and how they've overcome. And hopefully we'll all learn something new. We have so far and ultimately at the end of the day, we just want to walk away, you know, want you to walk away entertained and have a roadmap to better, uh, whatever better means for you. And uh, on that note, uh, today our guest is Rob Shattuck. Uh, so Rob has held many senior level uh, executive roles within multi-billion dollar global manufacturers, uh, the likes of uh, Motorola and TE Connectivity. I'm sure you've heard of them. Uh, he's been CEO of two smaller businesses, both of which were successfully acquired. Uh, Rob has a track record of leading innovation and building growth through product development and manufacturing transformation. So we're in great company. Um, now retired, Rob currently serves on a number of advisory boards and does consulting with startup manufacturers as well as large enterprises. Speaking of the Motorola, Dave, um, company. So he, I think you told me, had a hand in developing the Razor phone back, back in the day. Yeah, it's a great story. And I, I hope that we can get into that today with him. Yeah, I loved that phone. I had one. Did you have one? <laughs> I did. Yeah. I don't know who didn't, but cool. Sounds fun. So Rob, thank you so much for joining Forging Manufacturing. Yeah, it's great, great to see, to see you, again. you again too, Dave. It's been a while. It has been, especially live and in the flesh. I think it's been over a year or two years, probably. Yeah, at this yeah, point, you keep I guess. it's been a year and actually it's coming up to two. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's lingering and still in the bay oh, area yeah. yeah still here yeah it's a it's a great place to be it'd be hard to leave <laughs> yeah and your stack of books oh, yeah. is, is just yeah, that's growing my uh, size moment i tell people <laughs> yeah did you i was gonna say did you glue those together or are they just <laughs> no it's a cheap there's a, a metal bar that runs up the back and it, there's a plate about every five books <laughs> <laughs> gotcha well, Rob, you know, you've had the, the uh, fortunate opportunity to work with some of the, the largest, you know, multi-billion uh, dollar global manufacturers and, you know, your, your latest ventures, you know, since you've kind of semi, I'll call semi-retired in, in a sense that now, you know, you, you're sitting on advisory boards and work with a lot of other, you know, startup uh, manufacturers and helping them get going. I'm just curious, it's such a diverse uh, experience that you've had and a really unique lens. Can you talk to me about your passion? Yeah, help us understand kind of what, uh, what's got you going uh, yeah, through all these years? Interesting question. You know, I, I think actually it goes way back to when I was, oh, I don't know, it's still in grade school. And I had a great uncle who um, we used to go and see every Sunday. And out the back of his place, there was a workshop and he would take me and my brother out there and we would make stuff you know just little toys boats cars and he of course you know grew up um where everything was hand tools you know big hand braces you know if it came to drilling a hole in a piece of steel he worked for a company that made beds and uh, he designed some of their folding beds for them um but you know he would do it all by hand um so it it sort of instilled in me a love of making things and uh, I think that stayed with me all the time. And I've always tried to get involved in, in businesses and companies that are, that are making stuff. Um, no one would want my software. So, you know, I stick to, stick to physical objects that you can actually hold in your hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, in the spirit of, of making things, you know, brings into the, the world of innovation and so much has changed, I mean, especially now, but what do you see, you know, as, as you're, you're dealing with, you know, you're still on the advisory boards and committees for some of the largest manufacturers out there and, and you're, you know, dealing with the startups, but the, 
the ability to compete and the technology is changing so rapidly. You know, what's, could you name a th- few things that are exciting to you and, and some of your key focus areas that, that, you know, that are, <laughs> it doesn't matter what size of manufacturer you are. These are the types of things that, that uh, may either be opportunities or threats. Depending yeah, on who I, you are. I think there's all of that. I think, you know, this, this fantastic convergence of, of technology into manufacturing that's happened over the last 10 years. And, you know, some of the things I notice is it's particularly for the startups is that the choice of how and where you get things made has improved dramatically. Um, and watching startups um, be able to go out, you know, find easy access to 3D printers, but not just 3D printers, any kind of manufacturing service that you need um, is now so much more accessible. And that's really helped change the way people think about their product development and um, giving them uh, access to a, a lot more sort of ability to experiment and try stuff that I think was, was previously not there. And it, it's changed that, you know, lowered the barriers to entry for companies that want to get in and, and make something physical. Um, and of course, we've seen this, you know, rethinking of how you make stuff with uh, additive manufacturing. Um, and like all these things, obviously it's been through its hype curve um, and it now seems to be settled into that nice, you know, long um, upward curve of adoption and improvement. Uh, and I think that's very exciting because one of the things, you know, apart from all the many different things you can do with additives, is it also makes you think about how you're going to structure the way you make things in the sense that, you know, when you know, manufacturing is always, you know, this tricky balance of uh, getting, you know, you've got to have great quality, you've got to have it at the lowest possible cost, and you've got to have, you know, ultimate availability and reliability in in everything you do. It's it's really hard. And I don't think um, enough people really appreciate how these different forces on manufacturing, um, you know, are at play for those people right in the middle of it. Um, you know, it's very easy to just say, you know, try and adopt the new, you know, go ahead, adopt the new technology, go do the impossible all the time. But manufacturing isn't always about doing that. But I think what, um, well, manufacturing is nothing about doing it, <laughs> creating the impossible, I suppose. It's, it's you know, it, it is that hard balance. Right. But I think what Additive has done is it's kind of changed the way you might think about some of these things in that, you know, traditionally you start off, you, you've got a part. The first question that anyone asks is, you know, how many do I need to make? And, um, you know, then they do their tack time calculations and, you know, they go off and design a process to try and make tack time. Whereas with additive, you get this other dimension, which is maybe we can go sort of slow and flexible and parallel rather than kind of fast and serial. Um, you know, we've all seen those images of rooms full of 3D printers churning out stuff, which kind of is a is a graphic for, for that thought and that um, you've got lots of machines that run slowly um, and you get your tax time by having a lot of them. So one, one of the things we've sort of played around with and experimented with at different times is, okay, you know, maybe instead of trying to op- make one optimized line, and then keep tweaking it and you know trying to make it run a bit faster all the time we do something that's cheaper slower and you know flexible and then just make lots of them to scale our manufacturing that way um and i think that's a you know it's a thought that doesn't always work um but it's something that i think we're going to see an increasing adoption of in the sort of medium volume sort of manufacturing um and, and that, I think, is a really, really interesting change. Yeah, I like the, the point you make about flexibility because we, um, you know, we're getting more information back from the consumers now, right? You can go through and, and process and make a, a product and then all of a sudden you're getting feedback from the users saying, you know, this needs to be tweaked, this needs to be tweaked. In a traditional manufacturing sense, that's very difficult to do and it's, it's a lot more expensive. Um, but the flexibility of that 3D printing certainly certainly gives you that, that ability to, right. to make quick sort changes. Of, you know, agile meets hardware somehow. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting mm-hmm. paradigm to get into. But, 
you know, we, we're seeing a lot you know, as a small company I'm involved with at the moment. I think we've got, you know, a very clever product. Um, and a lot of its value comes from it being easy for the uh, trade contractors to install and, and, and use this product. Um, and they know that they're going to go through, you know, iterations, you know, they're going to get it out to, you know, several hundred users, they're going to get feedback, they're going to tweak the design, and they're going to go through three or four cycles of doing that before they get to a point where they have a, a, a mass production version of the product. So this flexibility is hugely important and a great pathway to getting better products. So we've talked about this before and, you know, change isn't easy, you know, that's yeah. <laughs> I mean, duh, right. But, you know, for those manufacturers that have these, you know, very legacy processes, you know, very highly skilled workforce, but maybe aging. And, um, but the reality is, is you need to continuously adapt and what do you think are one of the you know, one or two of the biggest reasons why people just or companies fail to fail to change, to maybe change fast enough? What are some of the biggest hurdles yeah. that well, you see? Good, good question. I think um, you know I've, I've seen that that a lot over the years. That um, and I think it's the very nature of of manufacturing and what we're asking people to do. So I think it's sometimes a little bit too easy to sort of you know, say, wow, you know, you guys are too conservative or too slow to change. The, the very manufacturing, the very essence of what we ask our manufacturing teams to do is actually to be reliable and conservative and, you know, be on point and be on quality. And so, you know, into that, you you want to try and insert change. That's that's really, really difficult. Um, and especially, I think, in in many processes where, historically they've not been super well instrumented and so it's relied on expertise and knowledge and tuning to make the process work really well you know there's there's often been a lot of um expertise on the floor with the process that keeps it running and keeps optimizing it so you know there's there's, there's a couple of different things i think that, that start to happen from that one is you know the first step I think towards change and that we found has worked really well is you start instrumenting your processes um, and then you find um, then you'll find you know new ways of improving and new insights into the process um, but of course you've got to do that with the people that are running the process you know it always fails if it's you know the the outside experts come in and you know try and tell you what to do i've seen this with um AI-based systems that monitor process and provide you know, insights and prediction into how to tune the process. And inevitably, um, you know, that clashes with someone who's been running the process for a long period of time, um, particularly when the predictions are sort of somewhat counterintuitive as to what needs to be done. So you have to carry along the team with you. Um, so as you're getting data and as you're getting um, insights into the process, you've got to carry that manufacturing team with you through that process and, and make them part of it. Um, and that's kind of this issue of instrumenting, finding, finding what normal is and then finding ways of challenging normal. Uh, and then I think you've got this, this other thing going on, which is, um, you know, how do you introduce new technology and new techniques in, into a manufacturing environment? And, you know, we, we struggled a lot at, at various times with this um, because, you know, the many times the traditional way of doing this, you think of, a, you know, someone tries to put together a business case and, you know, essentially it's, you know, we all know what business cases are like. There's a large degree of made up numbers in there that, uh, trying to justify the conclusion that you want um, and, uh, uh, and you know particularly when it, it's kind of proposals for massive change so so we've found it much more effective to that sort of you know you light small fires you try and get small small wins and then use those to show people um, how a new piece of technology can work 
and where it can improve or change your, your manufacturing. Um, but also we've done things like, you know, many years ago, <clears throat> we started looking at the use of robots for a lot of assembly operations. Um, and, you know, there's always been a labor cost versus um, capital cost trade-off go on there and, you know, how many years payback you get. And, and it was pretty clear that, you know, the only thing that was going to happen with robots was they were going to get cheaper and, and better at doing the job. Um, but it was still hard to put together, you know, good coherent business cases to make this work. And, you know, introducing new technology and people have seen early generations of robots in manufacturing where they, and, and I don't mean the sort of, you know, big uh, welding robots on a car assembly line or something like that, but, you know, small, flexible, um, assembly robots, you know, three axis, four axis kind of robots. Um, and so what we started doing was, was saying to the plant operators, you know, hey, look, you know, let's pick a, pick a process here. We'll, you know, code up and design a, a robot version of, of this process. And we're not going to charge your manufacturing PL anything for doing this, or we'll take on all that development under some other research budget. Um, we'll put it in, you run it. If it works and you like it, then we'll transfer the costs over to you. And so that worked in incredibly well. Um, and then, you know, another thing that was done and uh, one of my team came up with this was he started running competitions um, in the factories. And we would take this kind of model and we'd give a, you know, a kind of robotic cell and we'd make that and then we'd make it available to teams in factories. Um, and we'd run a competition where we'd say, you know, go and automate um, one of your processes. And, um, you know, then we'd have a sort of, you know, bake off really between these different implementations and give them a prize. And it was, it, we turned it into, we turned it into fun. We turned the technology introduction into a sort of competitive thing between factories uh, and made it a bit of fun. And, you know, of course, this is that same principle of, of lighting lots of small fires. We were now lighting lots of fires around a network of factories uh, to try and introduce this new technology. That's incredible. And there's a lot there I, I could, we could unpack. And yeah. I remember the last time we spoke, you actually said, you know, one of the biggest barriers or, or one things that companies tend to do is, or I guess they're stopped by their imagination, which it sounds like what you, you've kind of developed this process and, or, or fostered this whole innovative mindset and allowing ideas to come from anywhere. And I love that small fires. And I just, unfortunately, I, I haven't heard it enough, right? You hear the, the big companies, the Googles and the, you know, the, the skunk works type projects and kind of behind the scenes. But I mean, you can really bring innovation and R and D forward, which sounds like you've yeah, done successful. Well, it's, it's fun, you know, <laughs> that's, that's why you do this stuff. <laughs> um, but um yeah, I think it, um, you know, to that imagination thing, you know, when you're, you're looking at, you know, how do you, how do you improve something? We've seen this in, you know, a number of processes. Um, uh, your, your imagination is, is often kind of limited by, um, you know, the, the experience you've had to date. So, um, you know, when someone else comes along, you know, the consultants, the man from corporate or, you know, some other annoying person and says, hey, you know, this needs to be 10% better or, you know, why don't you do this? You're, you know, you, your instinctive reaction is to look for all the reasons why it can't be done. And then, you know, maybe you get into a conversation that's a bit deeper than that and you're building on all your experience of um, things that have gone wrong in the past, things that have worked in the past. And it, it becomes sort of imagination limiting. And so, you know, you have to, you have to kind of try, you have to set a, you have to set a new, a new goal. Um, 
and then try and help unlock people's imagination to get there and and, yeah. and and that that sounds great but you know hard to do so how and i've found that this process of you know breaking it down into smaller things not making stuff into big initiatives but turning things into a set of small experiments into a set of small ideas um, helps you make progress and build to a to a bigger goal somewhere you've got to have that big goal that you're aiming for but breaking that down into a bunch of small experiments and engaging the people in those small experiments seems to make it go a lot faster. The Forging Manufacturing Podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and championing innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus of helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. That engagement, like bringing that teamwork together, you know, we talked a little bit last time about the yep. negativity that can happen in an organization. And you're absolutely right. We've got, a, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. And I've tried a bunch of things and nothing seems to, to make anything better. But I think by bringing somebody in, that type of consultant, working in a team environment, I love the idea of having competitions. I think that's great. Um, just sort of breaks down that, that negativity, breaks down those, those barriers and, and helps you improve those little processes. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, it, it, again, it almost comes back to that sort of, you know, small, slow and parallel kind of paradigm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also makes it easier to get budget. Once you have those small successes, right. It's a lot easier to prove out. It's not as theoretical. Right. Yes. I mean, you know, that's that I kind of like, you know, goes as, as part of the same, same thing. Um, that it, and again, we certainly learned that in a couple of attempts to transform manufacturing where we'd start off with, uh, you know, particularly we found with, um, uh, instrumenting and an IoT, bringing IoT kind of into into manufacturing, we'd sit down and you know put together a, a fantastic large business case, going back to the kind of made up numbers. But we'd go, you know, we're going to get all these improvements, and that will give all this payback, and you know then, and that's often the way it works. Um, you know, you need to present this business case and show show all these paybacks, but. You know, really, you don't you don't know what you don't know, and you're you're estimating and guesstimating all the time, and so you finish up in all these long conversations where, you know, even if the numbers all make sense, there's doubters, there's people that you know see that and go, well, can I really? You know, you're really going to be able to do that? There's there's all these different factors, so you know, again, it was much easier to just use a bit of budget that. You know, I've been lucky when I've been working in in large corporations that, um, you know, we could do things within the rounding error of a budget. Um, I've never been, I've never had the enough, um, uh, I guess, patience to get into the last, you know, decimal point of my budget anyway, as my bosses will always have told you. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, rounding errors. you know, you try <laughs> Just rounding find, errors. find a little bit of money somewhere figure out that little experiment that you're going to run and then you can kind of build on that our, our um in, in one area when we're starting to introduce um iot you know we went through exactly this process we had you know long pitches of how we needed to spend you know five million dollars and here's we're going to be all these benefits etc cetera, etc cetera. it was going nowhere and then we sort of said you know let's pick a pick a machine um in one of the factories and we'll instrument it and uh, so we instrumented it. And I guess to a certain extent we got lucky, but um, we found that um, this, this, this machine, you know, every so often it would stop and an operator would open a door and fiddle with something and close it and then the machine would, would run again. Okay, huh, this is a bit, you know, it's a bit odd. Um, and, you know, if we add all this up over a 24 hour period, we're losing about an hour of production every day um, but because it came in these tiny little steps that everyone thought was normal um, it never really got you know super investigated I mean this is just 
normal. You know, the machine would stop and, you know, it took, you know, a few tens of seconds for someone to just, you know, solve the problem and have the machine running again. Um, and even when people were doing their um, OEE and, you know, manual measurements, you know, they'd see this happen maybe a couple of times in the hour that they were the measuring and they just go, ah, that's, that's kind of normal. Um, so, you know, we discovered these, these micro stops and then suddenly we had a business case. So now instead of having a theoretical business case that we'd kind of made up with estimates of how much productivity we might get, we actually had something we could point to. Um, and then we could build our business case around that. So, so we learned pretty early on that, you know, it was much better to just find a little bit of money somewhere to instrument something get some data off it. And then we were building business cases with real numbers. And then when people saw this, you know, they suddenly had a lot of enthusiasm for, for what we were trying to do. And we could take that um, model and take it across more processes and more lines and, and more plants. And then, you know, it, maybe we got a little bit lucky, but, you know, we found something there that we could find across all sorts of different types of process. So we'd looked at an assembly machine to start with. And then we started looking at, well, what happens in our stamping plants? Oh, hey, look at that. You get a similar, mm -hmm. similar thing, different mm -hmm. causes, you know, maybe a reeler would, would stop occasionally. Um, and again, it was this sort of, well, this is treated as normal. It was a, you know, something that happens. Um, they can fix whatever went wrong very quickly, but no one then went to the next level and said, well, how do we stop this happening at all? because it didn't seem to happen often enough. You know, it wasn't, wasn't worth the effort. There was, you know, you've got to keep the process running, you've got to keep making parts. Um, and this was just something a little bit annoying, but no one had the time, nor did they have the tools and skills to go and figure it out. Whereas once we started instrumenting it, we could see what was really happening. And there was different causes and, you know, we'd put high-speed cameras in some places and stuff like that to just help them figure out what was going on. But this sort of process again of, of you know, starting small, instrumenting as something, and then using that as a teaching example and as a foundation for business cases really helped us, you know, make improvement and changes across manufacturing. That's such a good point. I mean, we, you know, everybody runs through these little hiccups that happen on a day-to-day -day and they're, they are, they're infrequent, but once you start measuring it, right, you realize the impact that it'll have across a day, a week, yeah, a month, yeah. a year. Yeah, no, Such it, a good was, point. It, it was surprising. It, and it, it transformed the way we, we thought about, you know, how we were going to do more and more upgrade and digitization of our processes. And it, it turned everything into a sort of model of, um, you know, let's instrument first and then, you know, see if we see if we find something that can then turn into a, um, a, a business case and a you know, transformation program. It really is such a good lesson to, to question everything. You know, what if, what if we could eliminate this little hiccup, you know, that happens three times a yeah. day, what would happen? Well, right? first so you need to measure how great, big the hiccup is. That was, that was the real, that was the real right. insight. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you know what, that also then brings challenges. I mean, the better, the more uh, introspective, I guess, a business and the business leaders become, then it starts to become a challenge in priority. And I, I'm very fascinated with how companies start to prioritize when everybody has maybe their own agendas and their own issues and there's finite budgets. Do you, can you speak to any process or a philosophy or whatever that you've found successful to, to help not only uncover, you've talked about how to kind of take the small steps, but how do you even then, once you have a bunch of different things identified, have you found a, a, a pretty decent way to help companies understand how to prioritize what to focus on first. <laughs> oh, that's uh, wow. Where do you start? Um, <laughs> you, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, prioritization is always, um, it, it, it's always tough. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, every company has you know their favorite method for trying to do that you know they're going to have a return on invested capital or they're going to you know what, what whatever they're, they've got some metrics that they're they're going to use um and uh i 
I found that, um, <laughs> you know, part part of the part of the trick really is to have um, multiple advocates for this whole idea of lighting all these small fires means that actually you finish up with, this isn't necessarily going to help answer the question of how you prioritize, but it, it increases the importance of making decisions about moving forward is that if you lit a lot of small fires, then you have a lot of people wanting to make change. Um, and that drives some, um, urgency through the decision-making process. Because um, quite often, you know, prioritization discussions can become uh, something that keeps getting shifted down in time as people ask for more data and, um, uh, and people have, as well, of course, you know, game the, game the numbers to, for their favorite project. But if you have um, lots of advocates for making change, uh, then the prioritization process gets a sense of urgency. So that's that's kind of a, an important thing to do. Yeah, and I actually am thinking about that too, that the, the essence of lighting those small fires, like you're saying, kind of takes a little bit of the onus off of having this strict prioritization. You know, I've got to get this massive capital, you know, uh, budget just to, to tackle this one issue. You can actually do a bunch of little things at the same time, and then let data start speaking for you. I guess a data can help drive your, you know, what's the, the greatest impact back to the organization if it takes the same exactly. resources, I guess. To, yeah, to ex exactly. I, it, yeah. You know, to me, the, the big thing is that you're bringing higher quality data into that decision-making process. Um, and, and I think that's the really important piece because um, I think one of the challenges with prioritization is if, you know, if the underlying data is poor, then you, it, it leads to a, um, uh, no one's satisfied with the, with the outcomes, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you also know that you're probably uh, leaving stuff off the table um, that could be beneficial. Uh, and, and this, I mean, this always happens. Prioritization is, it's not really a perfect process because it just depends on, it's perfect in the sense that, you know, if you set a bunch of rules around it and you follow those rules, then, you know, the process is working great. But the problem is that the metrics you've used in those rules, you know, may or may not be the, be the right one. And you're always going to have these long-term versus short-term trade-offs. Um, and it's, it's difficult. Um, prioritization is not, generally not not easy in my experience i don't mean that it's not easy to make a decision it's just hard to pick the right often hard to pick the right choices um and this process of keeping you know lots of small activities that you can then get better data really helps inform a prioritization process and um you know in my experience it's also driven to that has then driven you know people thinking of at a higher level about the budgets and how they're going to allocate the money, because that's, you know, it's really a resource allocation problem. So if, and your goal as a, someone trying to transform a manufacturing environment or technology or introduce new technology is to get more of your budget allocated to doing that. First of all, you know, measuring and research and data analysis, um, and then more of the budget allocated towards uh, the, the outcomes that you want, looking at those programs and scaling them up. And you really get the scaling money when you can present great data. Um, and then you just, hopefully, you want, you want to get to the point where you're, you have an embarrassment of riches, uh, that you're making your prioritization decisions based on, you know, which one of these five good ideas are you going to scale first? Um, rather than, you know, making decisions about uh, trying to create those ideas in the first place. <laughs> you know, I'm going around in circles talking or, the same thing here. But <laughs> yeah, or rather, you know, making the decision of doing nothing, right? Yeah. You got to do something. Yeah, yeah. but again, <laughs> that comes back to these, you know, small fires. Um, right. You're kind of, you know, you're doing mm -hmm. something, you're providing more data, you're, you're gathering information. Um, and I think it's, it's sort yeah. of intuitive to, to many people. It's just, 
you know, in, in a typical environment, particularly manufacturing, manufacturing is hugely budget conscious. You know, it can be really hard even to get the, the budget to, to just light the first fire. Um, and so, you know, bringing it round again to this aspect of getting excitement and enthusiasm going, um, a lot of these things happen because, you know, you've got people that put in that little bit of extra effort, a little bit of personal time, um, you know, they kind of work around the corners of their day job in order to try out this little first fire or, or get something done. Um, so you want to encourage in the, in the um, environment as a whole, this idea of trying experimenting and being a little bit competitive. And that, that was where our, our competitions really helped, you know, it set people thinking about it. And, you know, then people, if people are enthusiastic and interested in it, they'll, they'll find a way of trying their first little experiment um, that, you know, and they'll reach out to other people. And that's the other thing I, I suppose that we haven't really talked about, uh, more so for bigger organizations than, you know, small organizations is, you know, helping build this network across plants and, and across groups where people can bounce ideas off each other. Um, you know, so uh, one of the things we found about running these, these competitions was that we'd expanded networks um, across manufacturing plants, you know, which didn't, wasn't something that normally happened. You know, people would be, would be networked at the higher levels of the hierarchy, <clears throat> but the guys down on the, on the floor who, you know, can be the best observers and the best um, uh, change agents. And, you know, in a way that's part of, of course, what the whole, you know, lean manufacturing process tries to get to. Uh, it's just, actually thinking about it. It's the same thing. It's trying to get insights right from the folks, you know, at the at the coal face, as it were. Um, but what we were able to do was improve these people's networks, so you know they could reach out because of the competitions, because they'd met people trying to do similar things. They could bounce ideas across each other. They could share ideas and stories and expertise, um, and that really helped change the change the dynamics. And I, I think it's something that's not, you know, when you're doing transformation and trying to make a lot of change, it doesn't in manufacturing or, or anywhere else, if you can actually extend the network of the people at the coal face, you know, so they can talk to people at other coal faces, uh, that's a powerful, powerful change agent and enabler. Yeah. That's incredible. And just talk about the, the cultural impact that they can have for that company too. You know, so it's, it makes people feel like they're, they have more of an ownership and it, it, com it brings people together within their own organization when they're just maybe typically just task oriented or on their own job. So I, I think it has even outside of just change and innovation, I think just culturally within a, a company that's, that's phenomenal. Yeah, and also, Dave, I think you and I both have seen some success connecting networks, not outside of other organizations, right? We know we can do that inside an organization. We've certainly seen the trend for process improvement teams, but connecting other manufacturers um, has been hugely successful um, for some of my network, my, my folks in my network as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They run into the same problems, right? They're a little bit different, but they all have the, they all seem to have right, the same exactly. type of problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you find you know, lots of people are trying to say, solve the same kind of problem if you can yeah 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 company making chairs and then one making conveyor systems and you right. know general equipment <laughs> uh, you know i don't care what i don't care what you're making they still have supply chain issues and manufacturing capacity yeah. issues and you know technology so yeah it's and you're yeah. dealing with people yeah and, and i think actually <laughs> so. you know you're taking it like maybe going back to some of the things we were talking about before where you know you have people that have tended to grow up with a process and you know they've learned its intricacies and they've they've been in this they're kind of in this box for for, for long periods of time um you know networking them with other people is is very powerful because that you know normally wouldn't have happened um so now we're, we're connecting them across to other groups and, and other people that have been you know in, in their box 
You know, so this, and thank you so much for your time. And I really have maybe one, two more questions in total. And I, we'd be remiss without talking about a project that I just think is fascinating. I'm sure we could probably talk for hours on many aspects of it, but uh, you were in charge of a, um, the in charge of R&D and development for when you were at Motorola for a, a, a pretty game-changing I mean, you really set the stage. I think you and your team set the stage for where we are today when it comes to mobile. Um, and you can speak much more to this, but can you talk to about the project? I guess the <laughs> Razor. Um, it's just very, uh, I actually saw something or an article recently within the last couple of months, because I think Motorola is coming back, going back in the, the Razor direction or something yeah. with the development. Uh, sure. There. Yeah, that was, um, that was interesting. And, you know, my job really was to, provide air cover for the for the team it was the really interesting project and it, it was it, it it started actually with the the group's cto um a guy called ralph peeney who um you know tasked his team to see how thin they could make a cell phone and uh, they built this prototype that was like i think 10 millimeters thick at the time for a, for a hinged hinged phone and um, you know, very, very, very cool concept. Uh, you know, held together with bits of you know tape and everything else. But it was it, it showed what what was possible, um, and it caught people's imagination. So then it was um, okay. You know, if we're going to productize this, you know, transfer it into the product teams. I happened to be to be running them, um, and then it was you know okay. Let's find a find a you know, put together a team, um, find the right kind of personalities to to be in that team. Um, again, folks who naturally had um, great imagination um, and a willingness to you know keep keep chiseling away at hard problems until they till they solve them. Um, and uh, you know, there's some exceptional people there, um, you know, there was a team lead, Roger Jellicoe, um, his, uh, his immediate boss, Tracy Koziol, who was uh, running the product management for that team and uh, great mechanical lead with Gary Wise and a whole team of people there and many people who, you know, I'm not even talking about. It was a, a huge team effort, but, um, but at the same time, it was also something very different. So, you know, my job was more the air cover, um, <laughs> you know, because enable <laughs> innovation, take the take the road. Well, you know, out we had there. discussions <laughs> about how, um, you know, because you know, one way you could think about Razor was, uh, you know, you'd taken you know a fat, chubby phone of the time and hit it with a sledgehammer. So, guess what? It had got thin but wider. Um, so there was quite a lot of debate. Um, about how maybe it would be too wide a phone, the you know small female hands wouldn't like it, and and then because we had limited space, you know, we had a relatively low resolution camera. It just had a VGA, maybe a six forty pixel resolution camera at the time, and you know at the time people were moving to megapixel cameras in phones, so you know there was a lot of discussion about whether this would um, uh, be um, you know, a, a negative. Um, and so, you know, at a, at one level, there was all that kind of discussion. And, you know, my, as I say, my principal job was to make sure that we kept spending money on it and that uh, none of these, um, nothing's gone the way. We knew we had a, we knew we had a winner though. The, um, you know, our marketing lead, Jeffrey Frost, a brilliant marketing guy was, was super enthusiastic for the project and, and we had lots of sort of small indicators. I remember one night, you know, we used to uh, have some, some of our team meetings in a local pub and, um, uh, you know, we, we, we took a couple of prototypes in there and um, uh, asked for some opinions from the bar staff. And I still remember one of the girls sort of taking this and, you know, she took the phone and shoved it into her back pocket of her jeans and she said oh that's great I can put put the phone in there and he, so we had this again we had some sort of anecdotal data that told us we were on for onto a winner but really interesting project I mean the guys did um 
some fantastic work with the uh, with the keypad, which was completely revolutionary and beautifully designed. Uh, the um, the castings for the frame, um, the use of new materials. We we were lucky to have a talented team um, and a, a group of people that were determined to solve the problem. It was it was exciting. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I got to say, when I saw the marketing on that phone, when they threw it down into the and stuck right into the concrete, that's I knew I had to have. <laughs> well, one. <laughs> we also found that you know there was there's interesting things that happened because because of the nature of the phone, you know, we we had the antenna in a completely different place. So the antenna was down at the base of the phone, um, near near the microphones, rather than being at the top by by your head. And that meant that we could get a really high performance radio now. Um, and uh, because we weren't having to, we had more freedom in terms of uh, the amount of power we could, we could use because, you know, in cell phones, um, you know, you have all these rules and regulations about, you know, absorption of radiation into the body and stuff like that. So by having the antenna down and out more in free space, um, we were able to uh, optimize the, the radio. And, um, you know, years later, I, I, I've still had conversations with people on, on boats and ships where they'd say, oh, that was a great phone. It was the only phone that I could use, you know, when we were halfway out of the harbor, I could still get coverage. <laughs> uh, so there was, there was just a ton of innovation. Um, and they were all, you know, it was a combination of lots of different pieces of innovation and improvements that turned into a great product. It's an incredible story. And uh, yeah, we've read a lot and done research leading up to, to now. And it's just, a, it's amazing. And, you know, I think it's got to be pretty, pretty heartwarming, pretty proud moment to see kind of what you've, you've helped be a part of with an incredible team, as you mentioned, uh, to kind of shape, shape an industry. And uh, yeah. So it's yeah, just, it it's, it's awesome. <laughs> you know, so I, maybe this is it. my last question for you, Rob is, you know, what are you most proud of in your, your career and maybe project, or if you can think of one thing, maybe that was it. Uh, don't want to leave the witness, <laughs> but um, you know, what, what, what are you most kind of, if you were to, um, to look back? Actually, I think, you know, the razor, you know, it was a lot of fun and I was fortunate to work with some exceptional uh, talented people on, on that program. Um, actually, I think it's more some of the things uh, I did recently um, in terms of this manufacturing transformation. Um, I, I really enjoyed watching um, this sort of wave of um, technology and awareness and understanding of the technology sweep through, you know, manufacturing organization. Um, and I think it's because, you know, because I like making things, um, that, that's kind of what, what drives me. Um, watching, watching that change and making that change happen and bringing, bringing that change to um, to an organization that was already a, a fantastic manufacturing operation, but, ha but hadn't yet seen the potential of some of this new technology. Uh, that, that I really enjoyed. <laughs> that, that I'd do again. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. And we can drop the mic on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't thank you enough. And I mean, you've had a, a, a lasting impact on me, um, you know, from years ago and sitting on the, the TE, the uh, science advisory board um, and, you know, helping us, you know, at the time with Autodesk and coming in and getting to sit around some brilliant minds at TE connectivity. That was, uh, and, and to hear the real world challenges. And I mean, you kind of, you brought a lot of you, you and uh, I forget the other gentleman's name at SRI. Oh, Bill, Jeffrey. Um, yeah. Bill Jeffrey. Yeah, that, that's it. Yeah. I mean, you guys brought a lot of amazing people and ideas and companies in, and that, that was just a, 
that really set a high bar for, I think, how some manufacturers just need to step back every once in a while and, and start looking at where, where technology is going, what other processes and companies are doing to enable uh, you to grow. So it's you've had a huge impact on me, Rob. So thank you for spending your time here. And uh, oh, thank this you. was phenomenal. Uh, yeah, it's great likewise, you, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's been indeed. fun. It was uh, great to reconnect, Dave. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully if you ever get back to the East Coast or I make it back to the West Coast when traveling's all completely opened up and no worries. Uh, you know, that would be great. Yeah, one day we'll, we'll be traveling. I need to get, get the motorcycle riding across country again. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Jason, uh, how enlightening was that? Yeah, that's cool. He's, he's a really cool guy. Yeah. Fun to yeah. talk to. Yeah, I, I've been in uh, a few different events and, you know, even private dinners with Rob and he, the, the man just oozes knowledge. Yeah. So anytime you get a chance to sit down for a half hour, 45 minutes with him, I think we all walk away better, which is ultimately the goal here, right? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, I really liked how he talked about change and change management, um, working as a team to give everybody the clear picture of why they're changing. Um and also the contest. I think the contest is a really good idea. I think a lot of times, you know, you know, I've walked many manufacturing floors in our sport coats and we always get funny looks as to what we're doing there. Um, but, but just by bringing everybody together as a team, explaining the changes that, that they want to work on or the process they want to work on, I think um, that that is a, is a road for success, for sure. Yeah, that, that tribal knowledge that walks through on the floors and then walks out the door of yeah, right. manufacturers over time right and that's an, a really it's a fun way uh, and a great way to to build culture and to build innovation within a company you know something else that that really resonated with me it, it's just it's funny you know we hear manufacturers trying to prevent fires and put out massive fires right. you know it's like it's, it seems very reactive and it's like it's a different paradigm shift when you hear rob say let's start some small fires, right? Controllable <laughs> fires, controllable. Yeah. Right. Right. But it's a fire and that burden to innovate and to get better. And that's what we all need to do. I, I don't care if you're a manufacturer or not. I think every company in some shape or form needs to, to innovate and improve in order to survive and thrive. Yeah. Right. It's like you got a fire behind you. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for joining Forging Manufacturing. We'll see you next week. See you later.